Hello and welcome to the Healthwatch Kent podcast, uh, where we get to speak to some of the most influential people in health and social care locally and nationally. My name's Steve Einer, I'm the Chief Executive of Healthwatch Kent, and we're the independent champion for the public in health and social care. And if you've got an experience of health or social care in Kent, good or bad, that you want to tell someone about, then you can contact us on 0808 801 0102 or you can go to our website healthwatchkent.co.uk. In this episode, I'm talking to Helen Greaterix, who's the Chief Executive of Kent and Medway Partnership Mental Health Trust. And we talk about a wide variety of issues around um, care for people with mental health issues in the community and in hospital care. And it's also uh, one of the first parts of our check it out series where i'm getting responses to uh, an interview that i did with ken rogers from concerns for health in east kent or check uh, who raised a number of issues that the group he chairs has around health and social care issues in the area we mention a couple of websites uh, that are useful points of information if you have any mental health concerns and you want some information about what services might be available to you you can ring us and the number that I gave you earlier and we can give you information and signposting to services. I mentioned the um, trust website that uh, Helen runs, uh, but also you can also go to liveitwell.org.uk if you live in Kent uh, to get information about services local to you. So I hope you very much enjoy my conversation with Helen. Welcome to the Health Watch Kent podcast. Okay, well, thanks, Helen, ever so much for agreeing to talk to us. And um, I was wondering if you would be able to start with a little bit about yourself and your background. Oh, thanks, Steve, and, and hello, everyone. Yes, happy to do that, of course. My name's Helen Greatrex, as you know, and I'm the Chief Executive of Kent and Medway Partnership Care. NHS Trust and I've been now in this job for just over a year. I started last year in June and in fact we just had a celebration cup of tea with um, all the other people that I did my induction with a year on. That was really nice. Oh. Um, I joined from I, I joined from Sussex and I'd worked in Sussex in various organisations in Sussex actually for um, 20, oh, 20 plus years and in fact I'd been on the board in in Sussex for 14 years, so um, a long time kind of locally in the southeast, and I was born and brought up in Sussex. I trained as a mental health nurse in London in the early 1980s. I started in 1983, and I was 19, and I can still remember my first day on the wards, and I still can remember how I felt. I had a really strong feeling that I'd come home. It was remarkable, really. I hadn't expected that at all. Oh. And um, and, I've, and I still get that feeling now when I do a shift. I sometimes work shifts on the wards and um, I still get that feeling and I still feel the power and the privilege of that responsibility as a, as a registered nurse. So, yeah, I trained in London and then worked in, in all sorts of places. I trained in, in one of the large old hospitals. It was the first purpose-built lunatic asylum in the country in the 1800s called Free and Barnet. Right. And in its heyday, it had thousands of patients. And when I when I started there... The numbers had started to be reduced because of the um, Thatcher government's 
movement to create community care mm. and my career in a way has followed that so I started in 83 at, at that point when community care was just on the agenda and then my latter career I, I worked um, helping people who, who'd lived in Claybury Hospital in London on the outskirts of London for many years and um, resettling them into ordinary houses in the middle of Leytonstone in London and um, when I think really in terms of my career I'm, I'm 54 this year and so I've been you know working in mental health for 35 years I think now um, and when you think actually that isn't a hugely long time but the changes and the right changes in my view have been made are just so significant the people I was helping come out of Claybury Hospital had an average length of stay of 28 years right Right. And today, you know, you look at our wards at, at KMPT, the average length of stay we aim for in an acute ward is 28 days. And that's just in my career time that those changes have happened. So there you go. That's a bit about me. Cool. So, so I mean, I think that's probably going to be a theme, a big theme of what we talk about is that mm. shift from, um, like you say, services in the historically being based around buildings yeah. to being based about what goes on in the community and, and mm. supporting people at home. Mm. And and you joined the trust at well, quite an interesting time because it had um, had a care quality commission inspection, I mm. think, the year before. That's right. Um, uh, and there'd been a number of areas that needed improvement. Um, mm. And you've just been re revisited at the beginning of this year and and kind of and so what was the outcome of that how did that pan out oh this is a lot i love talking about this <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the opportunity as they say um yes when when i joined we were an organization that requires improvement um and clearly a lot of work had already been done the, the original inspection was in january 2015 um, the trust was issued with various notices for improvement but was also overall rated as requires improvement they then told us shortly after I joined last summer that they would be back to undertake a fully comprehensive inspection um, this uh, year and they returned and um, the result that we had this time was completely different and and in fact if I share with you and I think you were there Steve weren't you at the quality summit where the yeah. CQC publicly declare their findings following a comprehensive inspection the slide that they put up and I've never seen this done I've, I've been to a number of CQC summits in my time but I've never seen them do this before the slide that they put up that showed our results as a trust said at the top yes nearly there exclamation mark and the nearly there that they were referring to was outstanding in their view KMPT is almost almost outstanding we were certainly a very very strong good and that was testament really to the to the work that had been going on and also to the pride and passion of the people who work in the organization and the, the willingness of people who use the services to say how it feels and um, so it was a really good result and we are absolutely determined to get to outstanding and to do that by autumn next year mm. uh, and we don't often seem to get a lot of good news around mental health. Mm. So you're right. I was at that quality summit, and and I agree. It was, it wasn't like others that I'd been to before, mm. where, um, you know, kind of the, uh, an awful lot of areas where there were lots of concerns and and mm. clearly a, a lot of work ahead. Mm. Yet, kind of, it really felt like a celebration, yeah, um, of how far you'd come but yeah. also there, there did seem to be that genuine kind of this organization could really 
um, you know, do even more yes. and, and, and become outstanding. You know, it's it's on it's on track to do exactly. that. Yes. So that must be really exciting. Oh, it is. And it, and it feels it feels right. And I think um, as chief executive, when you're having one of these inspections, the thing that you really don't want is for things to be found that you as an organization hadn't already spotted that would be the mm. worst thing you know if we were providing care that wasn't safe and we hadn't realized it that would just be an, an appalling indictment and and they didn't cqc um found what we had highlighted to them were the things that we were really worried about so for example um we know that our community caseloads are too high we know right. that we have um uh, inconsistency of provision so you know if I if I need a service and I go and try and get it in Thanet my experience might be different if I go and try and get the same treatment in Tunbridge Wells you know it, it, and that's not how we want things to be so we were very clear with CQC as we are with all our partners that we absolutely recognize that we are far from perfect we know we're not but the key for me is making sure that we know what these things are that need fixing and that we've got really clear um, plans in place to sort them out and to make it safe whilst we do that and that I think is what CQC look for they look for that um, very sharp awareness of what your key issues are and to understand what it is you're doing about it yeah I, I, I think it's really important that, that you've acknowledged that because certainly when we're out and about talking to people we hear from a lot of people that are aren't happy with the service they've received yeah. around their mental health and that's mm. not necessarily with you as a trust that might be with their gp mm. um or it might be how you know they've been admitted to hospital for something mm. else but feel that their mental health hasn't been addressed whilst they've been there you know those, those kind of things and mm. and there's been a lot of um highlighting recently around around young people's mental health yeah. um so so there is that real sense out when you talk to the public of feeling that health that mental health services aren't there you know they're not they're not at the the, the, the state that, that people would like them to be yeah. and a couple of, of the things that it would be really interesting to talk to you about is um one, one of the things i did recently was talk with a local campaign group in east kent um called check uh, concerns mm -hmm. for health in east kent mm -hmm. um and they're particularly focused on the changes that are being proposed in east kent hospitals which is mm -hmm. you know not your services and and they're um the the acute services for with a and e and everything else um but obviously there's a there's a mental health element there and one of the things they were saying they one of their proposals is a new hospital in the mm -hmm. canterbury area and one of the things they were saying was um well we need more mental health beds so this you know this new hospital could provide those mental health beds and and that's mm. not the first time I've heard people say that that mm. there's not enough beds for people so mm. kind of what what are your thoughts about that um I'm very clear that there are enough beds and I'm clear that there are enough beds because um I walk on the wards and sometimes I work on the wards and um not everyone who's in one of our beds currently should be in one of our beds currently and and that's what tells me we've got enough beds. I think when people say there aren't enough beds, what they're what they're spotting is that the access to beds isn't as quick as it should be or right. could be all of the time. Okay. So if you take, for example, our services across the county for people who have a personality disorder, the national guidance, best best practices that if that's your primary diagnosis, 
only for a limited period should you ever be admitted to a mental health bed. Um, and that's because actually being admitted to a mental health bed with that diagnosis can make you worse. Mm-hmm. So there's really clear evidence that a short admission planned in advance, maximum of 72 hours and then back out again with support is the way to go. But because across the county, our services haven't been designed or commissioned in that way yet, the only thing sometimes we can offer someone in crisis who has a personality disorder is coming into hospital. And once you're in hospital, if there isn't anything to go out to in terms of you know, a stepped program or psychological support or other things that would be recommended, then it's very easy for people to end up feeling that the only place that we can either provide or the person themselves receive care and be safe is in hospital. Mm. So what we're now doing is we've, uh, the board, our trust board, has agreed um, and are cl- led by our clinicians, written by our medical director, uh, a strategy for services for people who have a personality disorder. And that will mean that if that's your primary diagnosis, there will be a range of services in the community to support you. So that the default isn't admit to hospital. That then starts trans. Um, transforming our wards and it creates a huge amount of capacity so if I share with you that when I last looked a few weeks ago um, 30% of the people on our adult wards so we've got I think 174 adult mental health beds 30% of those um, are occupied by someone with a primary diagnosis of personality disorder so you can begin to see how actually if we'd got services in the community that avoided people having to come into hospital because no one really wants to come into hospital Mm. unless it's an absolute last resort and we certainly don't want to bring people in unless it's absolutely the last resort Um, then you start to get flow in the system which means then that when someone needs admission for whatever reason there's a bed as close to home as possible so I absolutely understand people's frustration at them not being able to get a bed as quickly as perhaps you would like consistently lots of the time it works very well it certainly works much better than it did Mm. but I also know that there are times when people have had to wait and that's that's not what any of us wants that's why the personality disorder strategy is a real priority if I can just pick up on two things there because um about personality disorder and about people having to be placed out of out of Kent yeah um so for for people that may not know what personality disorder is my I mean my my very limited understanding is that it's um it's not the same as a kind of defined mental health disorder like schizophrenia Mm. where there might be um treatment you know a a defined course of treatment uh, Mm. and that might be medical and it might be talking therapies and and all kinds of things Mm. um but it but it would include but potentially people whose um behavior you might you know might not be what's considered the norm it might be people that that behave unusually or eccentrically and so they're perceived to have a mental health problem but actually it's this kind of this this diagnosis of personality disorder does that do it justice yeah i think that's right and often people have a personality disorder will find it very difficult to um to handle um situations that cause so for example if you if you are living in the community holding on to a job a life a home can be difficult if you have a personality disorder and you're managing your emotions as well with Mm. perhaps few stable relationships in your life and lots of other challenges that can make things seem really 
uh, at a crisis level much more speedily than they might if you didn't have that diagnosis. So the work that we want to be able to do with people is to offer in the community a whole range of supports before anyone needs to come into hospital. Um, and that would that would include things like um, anxiety management, a focus on well-being, um, occupation. So if you're not working, what else might help you to stay well? Um, feeling connected to other people and um, joining activities, a whole range of things. Because mm, often um, people with, with personality disorder can be the ones that, that you might identify as, you know, developing um, drug and alcohol disorders and yes, becoming homeless and, yes, and all that's kinds right. of They're things. They're a really like vulnerable group, and I think, um, and I think, yeah, people sometimes talk about um, people who have that diagnosis differing quite significantly from from others, and in how they think and perceive. And that's why I say, you know, living a life without a personality disorder might be challenging. Living a life with a personality can be extraordinarily difficult because mm. your ability to self-regulate and manage stress and stressors can be really depleted. And you're right, that does leave you very vulnerable mm. to all sorts of things, including homelessness and um, uh, drug addiction on occasion. Mm. Okay. And so so your, so your view is that at the moment, um, the beds that there are funded um, and that you provide aren't necessarily being used in the right way. So yeah. um, historically, uh, and it's been a big cause of concern for um, for people who use services and carers that people have had to to be placed out of Kent, and and sometimes they've they've been placed quite long distances, Somerset. Nottingham, you know, oh, all awful. this kind of thing. Oh, yeah, terrible. Um, so kind of, but you, one of the first things I think you did when you came into post was to to um, pick up that challenge. And so, yeah. what happened there? Well, um, when I arrived, I knew that that we used private beds, and I knew that this was a problem because obviously I'd been reading in advance of coming for the job. Um, but when I arrived and I and I asked on my second day after my induction day how many people we had in private beds, um, I was amazed at the answer. The, the worst, and I've I've done similar jobs before with with tackling private beds and making sure that you've got the flow so that you get the right bed ready for the right person locally. I've done that before, and the worst I'd ever seen in a similar size organisation was in the low 30s, and that was a big big challenge. But when I asked on my second day here how many people we'd got in private beds, the answer was 76. Wow. 76. And those were people, they were local people. Lots of them were already known to us. So our clinical staff and the wards knew them, but couldn't admit them because we didn't have space. Um, and they had gone, as I say, someone had gone to Hull, other people had gone to Manchester, and and the really sad thing was that, of course, if you need to be admitted, it won't necessarily be between the, neatly between you know, nine to five. It could be in the middle of the night, which meant that mm. some people had been transported to wherever they'd got to go for a bed in the middle of the night. Just awful. Mm. Um, and, of course, the quality of care when people are in private beds, however good a private hospital might be, um, they don't know our patients as well as we know our patients. And when it comes to transferring them back 
sometimes getting the information about what's been provided in the private hospital isn't as good and if they're being discharged the links to the community support won't be anything like as good so for all those reasons we needed to sort it out and make sure we could look after our own patients locally and then if you add to that and I often say in public I've said before I think I've probably said it to you even if those beds were free those 76 beds even if they weren't costing the NHS a penny it still would have been all wrong because our you know, people need to be near their families when they're not well, um, and especially if you're if you're suffering mental illness, to be taken off somewhere far flung um, to a part of the country where your family really can't get to visit. You must just be absolutely awful. So, mm. even if those beds had been free, it would have been wrong. But they weren't free. They were costing this trust and the NHS over a million pounds a month. Yeah. So you'd got that appalling thing of really poor quality experience for your patients and. And a, an awful financial burden that's really not adding anything. So, yes, we set ourselves a really ambitious trajectory, and the key to delivering it, which was to get to as close to zero use of private beds as possible, and we, we've sustained that. We did it in six months, and we've stayed there, um, was to make sure that um, our clinicians were leading that work. So, the joy of being a chief executive is that I can release the talent that needs to solve the problems and and remove any of the blockages that might be there mm. to getting there. And um, so, Matthew um, Debenham, one of our consultant psychiatrists, led that work full time, working with a team of other clinicians. And the feedback from people who were brought back to us, and feedback too, actually, from families and friends of people who had been really worried about having to go up to Manchester for a private bed if they needed to be admitted was just overwhelmingly positive. And the, the good news is that even though we've still got a way to go on the um, work for people who have personality disorder, our wards are much more focused now on um, assessing for discharge the moment someone comes in we start working on what is it that will help them get to the point that they're ready to go back home or to the next place that they are going to um, and not waiting until someone's you know fully ready to do that to start thinking about it we focus on recovery all the time and that's a very mm. important message I think. Yeah, because um, we, as you know, we did a report with you guys around the use of out-of-area beds a year, a year or two ago, and yeah. and it was hap and and it took us you know months to understand all the different issues of why those things were happening, and yeah. and so by the time the report came out, you know, you'd already started the work on yeah. on um, addressing it. So uh, so certainly, you know service users and carers voices were heard and Definitely. you know responded to and it you know it's it's been a really positive outcome so I think you know that that's been a really good experience all around I think yeah I would agree and isn't it it, it gives me heart that actually that work wasn't complicated it was hard work but when the right people are leading it, i.e. people with a clinical background like Matthew and colleagues, um, it happens because people can immediately see exactly what needs to be done and then just get on and do it because mm. the organisation says, yep, you've got full permission and expectation that you're going to tackle this and, and let us know what you need in order to do it. Mm. The other thing I would say is that that um, overspilling of people who needed a general acute admission um, wasn't entirely as a result of, of the personality disorder pathway you know not being fully operational and I, and I won't shy away from this it's also because our community mental health teams are at breaking point or certainly were mm -hmm. um, with demand so we know that demand for mental health services is increasing and part of that's to do with 
a good reason, stigma being reduced and people feeling able to seek help. But it's also true to say that recession and um, world problems and events have meant that people sometimes feel much more vulnerable hmm. and are seeking help. And I know from the time I've spent working with the CMHTs and just listening to the experience of people who use our services that sometimes our community mental health teams aren't able to hold as robustly as they should be able to people in the community, which then means that people um, become unwell and sometimes require admission. Now, that's another area that we're now tackling. So the, the first priority was to sort out um, making sure that we could always get a bed locally when we needed it. The allied piece of work that is now really stepping up in terms of pace is strengthening our community mental health teams and being as uh, rigorous with them about the, who we do and don't work with because it, we, we can't work with everyone who's referred to a community mental health team and neither should we in just mm. the same way that um, other specialties um, don't take every single referral that comes through you need to be very clear with a finite resource where you get the most benefit and who um, needs to be worked with and importantly, not only who you're taking on and for what purpose, but at what point it's right to discharge someone back to wherever they need to go. So that might be back to their GP and primary care. It might be onto um, a support group in the community. It might be a step down to um, some group work run in a day centre. It could be a number of things, but my point is that we don't take people on and then hold on to them indefinitely just in case they need us. We need to be really focused in the same way that we are with our beds on why we're admitting someone, if you like, to a community mental health team, what the treatment plan for that person is in partnership with them so that we do it together and then agree the point at which... Um, going back to wherever is the most appropriate place would be cause for celebration actually because it should be when you when you've got better again and you're ready to go back to your gp or work or whatever it might be that's a real cause for celebration and we'll always be here so if people need to come back that's never a problem i guess i can understand for people it's scary you you kind of um you've had an episode you know perhaps you've had a crisis uh and you're getting better uh and i can understand the reluctance also from 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 patients oh, that, to to kind of um yeah. not want to lose that link with the person that you yeah. felt really supported you yeah. but what you're saying is is that's been um one of the reasons why teams have started to feel overloaded because they've kind of held yeah. on to people it's, yeah, and it's, it's a combination it's a combination it's a, and you know the 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 current phrase is patient flow isn't it but, but whatever it is it means that we're taking we're saying yes to everyone when actually we shouldn't um and we're holding on to people some people longer than actually they need to be held on to and and i think that's that's an issue for us as an organization to be really clear about and making sure that we don't do that because actually you end up giving a poorer quality service to people um by doing that i think mm. much better to agree up front that for me um you know if you were my cpn you and i would agree what my um, recovery would look like and how we would know when I was ready to go back to whatever. Mm. So and sorry, that, CPN's community psychiatric nurse. Sorry, yes, yep. community psychiatric yep. nurse, exactly that. Yep. So we would agree, you and I, what what would be the point at which I'd be ready to go back. And then once we'd reached that point, we'd agree if ever I needed to come back again or was worried about anything, these were the points of contact. 
what tends to happen, I think, in a in a situation where services are under pressure, is that with good reason, and I don't, you know, I don't deny this, with good reason, people are anxious about either members of staff are anxious about discharging someone in case they can't get them back on their caseload, or people using services are anxious because they're not convinced that they'll be able to get the help they need urgently if they suddenly need it. So mm. that's why this work, which involves getting caseloads down to a, a manageable level and managing the throughput in the same way that we do on the ward. So who who it is um, that we work with, over what sort of time frame you would expect it, in the same way that we do with the beds. So, you know, an acute um, average average acute admission would be around a month and the same way the community mental health team is looking at you know looking with people to be on our books for you know sometimes years but some of our people would, would move through much more speedily and um i guess one of the things that that people i guess understand to a degree but not not entirely is kind of the nhs isn't one big organization so you mm. can you can only speak for people that um have that have their their um illness has got to a certain point a certain level of severity yeah. Yeah. and that's where you step in that's right um yeah. and up to that point um what what we're looking for is kind of um how your your gp might manage you or how there might be some yeah. sort of other local like you say there's there's lots of mental health support groups out there there's this um talking therapies that yeah, your doctor absolutely. can refer you to so you don't have to have medication if if you don't feel that's the route you want to go and um, uh, but obviously the response would be from the public yes well i can't get to see my gp for for yeah. for you know a, a couple of weeks to get an appointment if i'm lucky mm. so uh, do you get any sense of kind of how um uh, how it feels out there in gp land around managing mental health yeah yeah i do we, we've got some um brilliant um gps across the county who are real champions of good mental health services and you're right um we are a specialist mental health trust so there are all sorts of steps that that can be offered prior to needing to come to a specialist mental health trust. One of the things that I think is really positive about the sustainable transformation partnerships that people will have heard being referred to in the news, STPs for short, sustainable transformation partnerships, mm -hmm. um, is that the whole system is being required to get back into balance, both financially and from a quality perspective. Now for us, and if you take mental health and GPs, in practice, that means putting mental health nurses in GP practices. And when I was training, you know, all those years ago, 30 odd years ago, that was happening. And then um, for all sorts of reasons, I think in the in the later 80s and 90s, that stopped and they started putting specialist teams together in different places. But the tide has turned in the right way, I think. And now um, it's going to be much more common to find that there's a mental health resource in your GP surgery, which will mean that you don't necessarily need to see your GP. You can just book in for a mental health conversation. Um, and find it much easier to access. But GPs are certainly very supportive of that direction of travel, mm -hmm. as well as being able to see that now their patients are able to be admitted more easily to a local bed because of the work we've done on beds. So joining the three things up together, the, the STP, the work on the community mental health team's caseloads, and our management of our own beds so that people can come to a bed locally, the whole thing starts to feel 
better, I think. Um, and there's a there's a real opportunity because although um, the, the NHS is clearly under enormous pressure and budgets are very tight, never been tighter. Actually, for us as a mental health trust, our greatest resource are our people, our professionals. So we don't have huge amounts of kit. If we want to move something into a GP practice and they want us to be there, then we can do it very quickly. And the feedback that we've had from patients and GPs where we've done that, particularly in West Kent, has been very positive. So there's more of that to come, I think. Okay, cool. So, so it sounds like kind of... It sounds like the concerns from patients and carers are are, are being heard. Definitely. So, and and if someone is receiving a service from you, there are ways that they can find out in your trust how to give you feedback. And, oh, definitely. And yeah. you, I know you have patient and carer consultative committees that we come do. together regularly, so we that do. you you try and hear what what everyone's saying and and how you can respond to it. Yep. If if people have got broader feedback, obviously they can contact us. And uh, here's how you can contact Healthwatch Kent if you've got uh, any bit of feedback, good or bad, that you want to give us. If you have an experience of health or social care in Kent, good or bad, that you want to tell someone about, contact Healthwatch Kent on 0808. 8010102 or go to our website on healthwatchkent.co.uk So it's definitely worthwhile for people to keep feeding in feeding back kind of what they're hearing and 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 kind of what their experiences are always always uh, yeah and, uh, and I it, there is nothing more powerful than hearing firsthand about someone's experience and that really helps me and my team make sure that we're focusing on the right things and what what do you um see as the kind of next big things that people should expect to be seeing as as changes so we've talked uh, about sounds like it's very much going to be community based so yes absolutely but but i think bigger and bigger and i was going to say bigger and better i don't think it's necessarily bigger and better but it feels like a real step change to me is the um mainstreaming of mental health in acute general medicine so if you look at any of our acute general hospitals across the patch you'll find that there is a liaison psychiatry service um, somewhere in the hospital, often based in A&E and often a very, very small resource. Only one of our hospitals in Kent has a um, cover at night physically in a, in a general hospital and that's Medway Maritime and that's just one person, one mm. member of staff. So if you've got two patients or more, you know, that already causes a huge pressure. So, but I, I think if we were really serious across Kent and Medway about improving a whole host of things, we would be mainstreaming mental health. So the way you go to an acute general hospital and you see, um, oh, I don't know, endocrinology and nephrology, you, it, you should also see psychiatry in just the same way with a, with a specialty that's as integral to the acute general hospital as those other specialties are, because we know that people can recover more quickly, even if they don't have a mental health um, need. Having had surgery or having received a diagnosis, we know that people recover more quickly with certain psychological interventions. So that could really help re-gear the whole system and, and speed traffic, speed us when we go into the acute general hospitals for 
treatment make that speedier and more effective actually which then means that you can start reducing the pressure universally on the acute general hospitals and I think that for me feels like a really interesting discussion to be had and we could be a leader nationally here doing that um, whilst we ramp up the resource that we provide in A&E for people who do have a mental health problem and come in because they're in crisis of some sort and, and need our specific help in liaison psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Well, we, we, we should probably start to wrap up, but but I, I just wanted to, to mention we haven't talked about children and young people particularly mm. because you don't provide those no, services in I'm Kent, so it's difficult. Yeah. Um, I think, am I right in saying you provide... Um, places of safety for people to go to. We do. Um, we do. So you you provide that element of it, but beyond that, uh, it's a, it's a new organisation from September that's going to be yeah, delivering right. that service. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just wanted to kind of get your view on that. There's there's a lot of talk. Uh, the phrase parity of esteem mm-hmm. um, has been used a lot, and uh, and I think actually something that that sort of central government has very rightly pushed quite well over the last couple of years is is you know a mental health um condition should be treated in exactly the same way as a physical condition mm. um do you start to feel that um happening the, and coming I feel through the beginnings of it um i i have to confess that i really dislike the phrase parity of esteem it, right. it feels to me really patronizing um and I think we should be much more strident about it and talk about equality of investment. Equality mm. of investment. For decades, mental health services have subsidised um, overspends in other areas and um, have suffered as a result. Uh, you know, Nationally, mental health services have poor quality estate and little capital to um, resolve those issues. And so I think we should all be talking about equality of investment and we should challenge ourselves, whether we're using services or working in services, to say, would I be happy for my loved ones or myself to use the service that I happen to be visiting today? If the answer to that is no, we should be absolutely loudly saying it and making it clear that this isn't good enough so i think i i think there's a step change steve in terms of parity of esteem i guess was a gentle starting point mm-hmm. to um help people perhaps who weren't as au fait with mental health as you and i are um to understand that actually a broken leg or psychosis have a similar impact on one's life and actually psychosis could be even more devastating so we need to make sure that we're investing sensibly but I do think with the STPs there's a real opportunity now because mental health and mental health expertise can really make a difference to transforming um, all sorts of services and if we get if we finish where we started which was me saying you know I started my training at 19 and and worked with people coming out of hospital who'd been in hospital for decades and here I sit today and we don't have thank goodness we don't have people being um, institutionalized like that anymore then it just goes to show that mental health could be a system leader for transforming things in relatively short space of time so good starting point parity of esteem but I think we need to see more Mm. all right well I think that's a great a, a great point to end on so thank you ever so much Helen for talking to me I think that's been really interesting and um, and as we mentioned before if people want to know more about you as an organisation I think it's 
kmpt.nhs.uk is the website um so that you they can find out more there um and in terms of kind of links to what you do what other services do and even if people feel that um they've got concerns about their mental health or someone else's mental health potentially a good place to start to kind of find out what's available for them definitely Okay. Well, thank you ever so much, Helen. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you. Cheers.